Welcome to another episode of Deed and Truth, a podcast exploring loving God and loving others, not just in words, but also in actions, and with the Bible as the source and standard of truth. I am one of the co-hosts, Tommy Morris. And I'm Sean Schomer. That's right. Here we are with our second episode together. We recorded on anger last week, and we're kind of compounding upon that this week, I would say. Yeah. We wanted to get anger out of the way so we could talk about this subject. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, what are we talking about today? Uh, We're talking about politics. Yeah, I think people can get angry with that. Yeah. I think we see a little bit of that in the world today. Most everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was, I mean, honestly, it was strategic on our part to discuss anger first and say, hey, can I work through this? And then we're going to talk about politics and then let's apply what we learned last week. Yeah. (laughs) You don't really watch a lot of news and stuff, right? No, not at all. No. Yeah, I've tried to scale back. I think because of the anger that's out there yeah it's hard it uh i mean it's it makes for good media so you know you rouse up your your viewers and you know well up anger in your viewers and they'll tune in next time yeah news isn't news anymore it really is its own um so it's like yeah that's probably a good word right (laughs) they're they're going for their own ratings right it's ratings are more important than actual news and yeah and it does feel like the more they can incite anger on both sides the more people will tune in for the next one yeah for sure so we want to talk about this and just kind of look at where politics plays into our faith you know our christian faith and and we've titled this the religion of politics because i think we've kind of seen that right that we kind of feel like it's become a religion yeah in a sense yeah conservatism and liberalism and uh americanism they've all become like a religion yeah because i was kind of saying like maybe a denomination but they've really almost become their own full-on religion with their own god yeah and and a lot of times it's a god of their own making yeah right who who looks very similar to themselves yeah that's right (laughs) yeah it's a very what a coincidence yeah it's crazy how that works right like wow your god sounds a whole lot like you wow okay so yeah i wanted to look at that and just kind of see you know, what do both sides kind of espouse and like, I mean, both sides use scripture, right? I've seen, I've seen people from both ends quote scripture to justify things that they believe in. Yeah. The scripture is true. They're just, uh, you know, cherry picking it to fit their, their own political agenda. I mean, what they're saying isn't wrong. I think that's the hard part, right? I think, well, and I think maybe the part that can do more damage, you know, I think if you just speak a blatant lie, or something that's just not scriptural. People can go, well, that's not scriptural. Yeah. When there's an ounce, a little bit of truth in it, then yeah. it's easier yeah. for people to accept. Yeah. So let's look at some of those, man. I mean, so I looked at some of the ways that those on the left, those who would consider themselves liberal, have kind of viewed scripture or have used Jesus in their arguments. And I think uh, a lot of them would feel that Jesus was, was somewhat of like a socialist in the way that he... Uh, both cared for people or commanded us in scripture uh, to take care of others. And so they would, they would view Jesus uh, kind of from that socialist aspect of everybody kind of caring for one another and meeting each other's needs. There are a lot of verses that I've heard them, them use to do that. And so let's, let's go through some of those and just kind of, kind of talk through them and see like, you know, where are we? Are, are, are they off base or or is what they're saying true? So let's let's look through some of the scriptures and arguments that they that they make. The first one is where Jesus feeds the five thousand in Matthew fourteen, thirteen through twenty one. And he he takes bread, breaks it, and feeds five thousand. I mean that was that was a miracle that Jesus did. It wasn't necessarily like prescriptive, like, hey, <laughs> go break bread and feed five thousand people. It was it was uh like the verses before and after Jesus is walking on water. He's he's feeding thousands of people. This is just accounts of Jesus doing miracles. Yeah, it really is. It's more about Jesus than it is about the miracle itself. But you know, they would look at that and go, "Well, there were, there were five thousand people that, and that really just accounted for the men." And speak to the women and children. So there were probably thousands more in attendance. And, you know, they would say, like, they were, these were people that are, were in need. They were hungry, and Jesus fed them. Right. I mean, yeah. that, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, nothing wrong with feeding people. Right, nothing wrong with feeding people. So we've been 
studying in our small group, we've been studying through James. And one of the one, one of the scriptures that came up actually in just this last week's study was verse 27 that says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then Psalm 68, 5 speak of God in this way, that he's the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. And so there would be this kind of push in, I would say, on the left side that to use these scriptures and go, look, we're we're supposed to care for those in need. We're supposed to, you know, care for orphans, we're supposed to care for widows, you know, and this there's a big social justice movement of creating systems or programs to care for people like this, you know, who maybe uh, obviously orphans can't take care of themselves, kids, you know, I mean, we wouldn't expect that, but widows also. And I mean, I would look at that and go, well, I mean, it's on the surface. It's hard to argue that that's a bad thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Taking care of the needy, feeding the hungry. These are all good things. Yeah. I think it would boil down to, well, what does that program look like? I think that's where sentiments like logistics would start to get argued. But when they say, well, God says we're supposed to take care of these people. Okay. All right. And then uh, Isaiah, man, what is, what's Isaiah? I think this is a, a big statement and something that would be big this use today. What's Isaiah say? Yeah, Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. It's pretty much saying like fight injustice and oppression. I think we would say that we are to fight injustice and oppression. If we see people being oppressed from social standards in an unjust manner, we would, I think we would want to fight for them. We see here again, you know, about the fatherless and the widows. You know, I think about our friends, the Vitros, who work in foster care. Yeah. There are a lot of kids who have faced some injustices. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, not to, not to go out there like, you know, like Batman and, <laughs> And literally be fighting the injustice, but, you know, kind of sticking up for the little guy, being a voice, yeah, being a voice for those who don't necessarily have a voice and helping where you can. Yeah. And I think that they would say as much as I could see Shara being a vigilante in that sense, right? <laughs> She's pretty tough, but they're, you know, they're working to fight that injustice and oppression in their own way and, and helping to take care of these kids. And I think that they would like to see more legislation and things that protect the kids more and help provide more what we would consider legal or social justice in those cases yeah because there's so much there's so much red tape to especially in the foster program that you know these kids go through and the parents and all that stuff and then the you know the kids sometimes get sent right back to their parents who were hurting them and it it just seems unjust and unfair it it does doesn't it i mean from this standpoint and so yeah, so there are those who are fighting against that injustice. Yeah. You know, and I would say, yeah, keep up the fight, right? Like, we yeah. encourage and fight support them fight. in that for sure. You know, and I mean, it just it continues in Acts 2, you know, it talks about all the believers coming together and, you know, selling their possessions and distributing to those in need. You know, and I think these are key verses that we've seen over and over on the left side that are used to support, you know, these social movements that, are that are to push us or you know encourage us to take care of those in need so i look through that list man and i mean on the surface i would say yeah those are good things yeah i don't disagree with that yeah no taking care of kids feeding hungry people sticking up for orphans and widows nothing wrong with that yeah i mean you've even done some work helping uh like with homeless people like you seem to to have this ability to get put in, in positions <laughs> yeah. and situations where God just opens doors for you to, to minister is, to them, man. This is true. This is true. Yeah, I've, I've got a heart for homeless people. And uh, yeah, I, it's funny. Like you said, I just seem to keep falling into these positions wherever I go, whether I'm at work or out and about. But yeah, I mean, what was, I guess, one of the most powerful things that I've been able to be a part of instead of like giving somebody 20 bucks or like giving them a cheeseburger or something was like actually being able to talk to that person, hear their story. Cause a lot of people don't care to listen, hear their story and then, uh, share truth with them, share the gospel with them, pray with them, uh, give them a ride, something like that. Just, yeah. Just like I, I preached the gospel and I prayed for him instead of just like giving them 20 bucks and going about my business. 
and that was that was more it, i don't know it just felt more impactful than uh like i say giving them a cheeseburger yeah i think there's you know there's something to be said for if they're hungry feeding them you know but there's also something to be said for offering eternal hope yeah so that's good you know and and you and i we went to zambia together you know and we got to see kids who were homeless living on the streets and you know there were girls who had been raped trafficked you know all kind of things and and so we've seen those in need and i think in a future episode you and i'll share a little bit about that trip and yeah. and just what god did and some of the things that have happened or that we're working on since we've been back you know yeah, we'll share true. a little bit more about that i think uh probably won't be till maybe november or so but but it's something i'd like to share and and we've but we've seen it but again you we've seen it right here in our own backyard yeah you know and so we're looking for opportunities to to do these things to reach out and to help those who are in need and and so we look at these things and we know that our these calls to ministry are true they are things we are to be doing and so when when those on the left would say well the bible says this i would say yes yes it does yeah yeah it does you know we are we are called to love and care for others. And so uh, I'd, I'd like us just before we go to the other side, to the to the conservative side and some of their talking points, I would like us to be reminded, you know, that scripture does call us to love others. Matthew twenty two thirty nine. you know, in, in Matthew 22, when Jesus was confronted and asked, you know, about what is the greatest commandment, and he summarized the Ten Commandments into love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The second is likened to this, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. And so we are called the second greatest commandment is to love others as we love ourselves. Yeah, Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Romans 13, 8 through 10, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So the Philippians one, I like the word "encounter others more significant than yourselves." That's a very descriptive way to describe love. Yeah. But then the Romans one that makes me think about what you just said, right? Oh, no one anything except to love each other. While you are completely content to feed somebody if they need it, to buy them a cheeseburger, you would sit down and have dinner with them, like no problem. But your bigger focus is to show them love, yeah. to love them. And to offer them the eternal hope of the love of, of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's powerful. John 13 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And it states in there, just as I have loved you. So, like, how, how has Jesus loved us? You know, he, he didn't just give us a cheeseburger and move on. You know, he did so much more than that. Yeah, he loves sacrificially. Yeah, for and sure. I, and I think that that's, you know, we'll we'll kind of get into this as we move into some of the conservative views. We'll, we'll talk more about that idea of offering up, say, food and the, the love of Christ as an eternal hope. Because I think that if you offer up, you know, there's scriptures to talk about, you know, if you're if you're asked for bread, would you give a scorpion? Someone, if you're at, you know, if someone asked you for a fish, would you give him a serpent, right? There's an, there's an element of preaching and someone's in need or hungry so someone's like hasn't eaten in forever and you're like i'll pray for you okay yes but you know get them some biscuits and gravy too right like help them out right let's meet the need let's feed them and and so to to just say i'll pray for you or to preach the gospel to them and then not meet an immediate need if, if it's medical or they need to be fed or something like that is not walking out again we're studying james right faith yeah. that is put into work right we're not living out our faith you know it's not that our works save us but but we're not living out our faith if we do that we're not putting into words but at the same time and, and we'll get into this kind of this moralistic view if we do these things but then we don't offer the gospel well then what good is it like eternally? So we've met a temporal need, but we've offered them no eternal hope. You know, we're called to the great commission. We're called to make disciples. We're called to preach the gospel. So if I do buy you the cheeseburger, but I never tell you about Christ, then what have I done? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, one side, buy them food. Don't give them any hope. You're kind of like workspace, you know, but if you walk by and say, I'll pray for you and don't give them food, it's, you know, James says they you know, your religion is worthless. Like faith without works is dead. Show me a man who has 
you know, has good works, and I'll show you a man who has good faith. So, yeah, it's good. It goes into James, too. Yeah, so with that in mind, you know, I think to the opposite side. So, you know, on the left, Jesus can be viewed as kind of a socialist, and there is this push for good works, doing these things to help out those in society. But again, that can that can lead to a works-based salvation. Somehow I've earned righteousness or earned favor with God because I've helped all these people. But on the other side is, I, I think, the view that Jesus was a moralist, that just sheer morality. And, and this, I think the difference maybe is that this isn't even about works as much as it, as it is uh, the a mindset, right? Like, like if I hold certain moral beliefs to be true, then that, just holding those beliefs, now that's my righteousness, holding to the, that morality, that standard of morality, mm-hmm. you know, I think is maybe the other side yeah, versus a workspace. And so I think there's two, two leading topics that you would see on conservative side. So the, on the left, we see all of the taking care of the needy, the poor, and the, all of that, those who are, are struggling. But on the right, it would, the two biggest talking points that we've seen for years now have been homosexuality and abortion. And so they would offer up their own list of scriptures to back up their views on the right side. And what would some of the scriptures be that we would see, you know, maybe thrown out there to, to maybe, you know, stand against the LGBTQ and I'm not sure of all the other letters at this point. Uh, it, I mean, it, it continues to grow, and I don't know them all, but traditionally LGBTQ, homosexuality, the trans movement. Um, what are some verses that we would see those on the right quote to say that this is against the Bible? Yeah, so Leviticus 18.22, you, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Abomination is a pretty strong word. Yeah, pretty big word. But you know, if I'm on the left, what am I going to say if you quote Leviticus to me? Yeah, that's Old Testament. We're not under the law anymore, right? Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32 has numerous words to describe it, including ungodliness, unrighteousness, impurity, dishonoring, contrary to nature, and shameless. Uh, yeah, that's a long, long list of words that are not in good light. Yeah. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 states that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. That one's heavy, right? Because that's, we're bringing like eternal salvation into the equation here. Yeah. I mean, we're saying that those who practice it. So I think we need to be clear with that. Like that's, that's speaking to like a lifestyle, like a lifestyle of practicing it. Mm-hmm. But it's saying they won't inherit the kingdom of God. That's, yeah. that's heavy. Yeah. First Timothy 1, 8 through 11 has a list of other sins and descriptive words of all those sins include lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. Mark 10 uh, refused people saying, Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. We're right here, 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Yeah, I think that one's important because I think a lot of times, so, you know, you quote Leviticus and it's going to be, well, that's Old Testament. We're not under the law. So then you quote Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy. And I mean, that's some pretty heavy things that Paul says about homosexuality. You know, some pretty strong words. But then people are going to go, well, that's Paul. It's not Jesus. Jesus didn't say anything about <laughs> yeah. it, right? So explicitly, you could say that, I guess, except that Jesus preached from the Old Testament because <laughs> the New Testament wasn't compiled yet, right? So if we say that Jesus was walking around quoting and reading from the Old Testament, then we would look back at Leviticus where it says it's an abomination. So Jesus yeah. would have held the Old Testament law to be true at that point. But he also gives a description here in Mark 10 of his view of, of male and female in creation and that marriage is between a male and a female who are joined together as one flesh. And so it is very much in the scripture understood what Jesus felt about relationships between men and women. Yeah. And so when we read these things, would we would we disagree with the conservative right as far as the biblical view of 
relationships between men and women? Uh, no, no, would not disagree. No, I'm good with those. Yeah, the next one, uh, the next big topic is abortion. And, uh, you know, you shall not murder. Exodus 2013. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, like, on the left side, you know, they don't see it as murder, but it is. I mean, Psalm 139, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So, that's talking about a baby. The mother's womb. Yeah. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret in my mother's womb, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I mean, that's wild to hear the psalmist write in that way. I mean, it's like... In the mother's womb, but also like even before that saying like the Lord God saw him in his unformed substance. Yeah. And that his days were already formed for him before they even were. That's right. That's super cool. So in God's eyes, from that point, we would say from the point of conception. Mm-hmm. I mean, God is all knowing. So prior to that, God knows that we are coming on this earth. That's right. But this is powerful. I mean, to to say that God knitted me together in my mother's womb. That is a work of God. Yeah, it's a miracle for sure. Yeah, and Jeremiah 1, kind of to, again, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And it speaks kind of like we just said, before I was formed in the womb, God knew me. And this is one of the things I love about scripture is how you can have two different writers from two different times and both saying the same thing. Yeah. Scripture interprets scripture and it's all, I mean, it was written over like 1500 year period, 1200, 1500 year period. And it all, it all says pretty much oh, yeah. the same 66 thing. books from multiple authors, yeah. you know, all that time. And yet it confirms itself. It complements itself. It's beautiful. And, you know, I'm excited because we're going to look into Scripture more as we get into next month and we record on Sola Scriptura, and we'll get to look into that more. But it's always fascinating to see these type of things. And so when we look at that and we we look at Exodus 20 saying, Thou shalt not murder, and we would look at Psalm and Jeremiah as reference points to God, God knowing us in the womb and having already been a part of of as the psalm would say us being woven together in our mother's womb that god is part of that process and so to to end that life proverbs 6 lists a, a, a list of things that says god hates it says the lord hates these things and in that list are hands that shed innocent blood mm-hmm. and i would i would say is there I know we talked about justice and injustice today in church, right? And and there is, the, and that would be a whole other topic of original sin and us being born sinners. But when we think from just a human standpoint, we would probably say there are none more innocent than children. Yeah. And there are none more vulnerably innocent than a child who has yet to be born. Yeah. Who is still in the mother's womb. And I've always thought it was crazy that to determine time of death, they would go by when your heart stops beating. And yet, in a baby in the womb, we know that there can be a heartbeat there. Right. And yet, people will argue that that's not life. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, you can see it on the ultrasound and hear it, you know, the baby's heartbeat. And then to say that time of death is when the heart stops beating. That that person's now dead. Yeah, that that person's dead. But... They're not alive once their heart starts beating. It doesn't make sense. That's a very good. I like that. Yeah. Because <laughs> you could be brain dead, but your heart's still beating. Right. And they will keep you on you're life still, support. You're still alive. But it's once your so your brain can stop, but it's when your heart stops that you're legally declared dead. Yeah. That's interesting. And so the crazy thing is, since you don't follow the news, I'll tell you this. So there is a candidate for governor in Georgia who this past week tried to say that that's not actually a heartbeat. We hear that it's this basically the the machine giving off a sound 
that sounds like a heartbeat, but it's not actually a heartbeat. It's just picking up like electrical pulses. That makes that makes really good sense. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> right. Electricity yeah. doesn't work like that. <laughs> well, yeah, and I I mean it's crazy. It's uh yeah, yeah I forgot you're the electrical guy, right? <laughs> Well, so all the, you know, I saw a lot of women who have had miscarriages and they talked about going in and them checking for that heartbeat and it wasn't there. And the doctor's telling them, like, you've lost the pregnancy. And so I don't know, how can we say that it's not life if not hearing that heartbeat is one of the things doctors use to determine whether a woman's had a miscarriage? Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, we already see a scripture yeah. that God's known us from being, from the time in our mother's womb. But medically and scientifically, life begins and ends. Well, the, a determining factor, I would say life begins at conception. But you cannot deny that a heartbeat is indicative of life. Yeah, it's, a form, yeah, it's life. That is, that is a telltale sign that there is life. Yeah. And a, a heartbeat stopping is a telltale sign that life is no more. Yeah. I've seen... People kind of walk it back. Like, uh, you know, I've seen people argue at the, anyways, about abortion and when, when the cutoff time is. And so I've seen people walk it back from like one day after birth. Okay, that's, that's a baby. Is it okay to murder this baby? Well, no. Okay, what about yesterday? And then, well, no, that's a little too soon, you know. And, and there, of course, there's all kinds of people like who are third, who are okay with like third trimester abortions and, and uh, stuff like that, but just to see them walk it back, and no, nobody on that on that side even has a agrees, so to say. There's just it's just whatever. Oh, I feel like you know eight and a half months is too far for me, but eight months is okay. Or I feel like third trimester abortions are bad, but you know second trimester abortions are okay. And it's all this feeling. Yeah, there's, there's no. There's no science. Doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason as to why people. Yeah. So I think we'll have to, at some point in the future, we'll have to just dedicate a full episode to discuss abortion. Because I think there's a lot in that that we can. Yeah, we could definitely. Can get into for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I have pretty strong feelings about it. Um, Yeah. I mean, back to the, you know, the conservative views is that morality is not righteousness. You know, they lean on abortion and homosexuality to you know say that you know they have high morals well on the left i mean honestly the left too I, I, yeah i do i think jesus being a moralist is very much um on both sides yeah it is on both sides yeah i think i think it's almost like a, a workspace righteousness on both sides right it, and there is this moralistic aspect to the conservative side there is this social socialist aspect to the left side, but they both come to their own kind of moral high ground, I would say. Yeah. And it does feel like both sides equate their morality with, with some element of righteousness. Yeah. And I mean, there's, we've seen all this scripture that they go through where they kind of cherry pick their own morality out of, you know, out of the Bible, out of scripture. And then that's, you know, that's their morality. Therefore that's their, their righteousness, but it's, it's not. Well, morality is not salvific, right? Yeah. Like morality in and of itself cannot save us, cannot give us eternal life. Yeah. So, and, and, and before we get into that, I want to point this out. I want to point out something like, so, cause we've, I think in some of the arguments we've made, especially discussing homosexuality and abortion, we would agree, you know, I think the same way we would agree that you're with the left that those who are truly in need and who are suffering, we should help them, right? And with the conservatives, we would agree with what Scripture says about homosexuality and and all that Paul wrote. We would agree with Jesus on what marriage is, the biblical definition of marriage. We would agree that abortion is murder. You know, we would totally agree with the right on that side. But here's something I want to point out. One of the verses that we spoke about that those on the conservative right would use in uh, speaking about homosexuality is First Timothy 1. So going back to this in verse 8, it says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, 
men who practice homosexuality enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so we talked about this being one that there's a long list of words that Paul used when he talks about those who practice these sins, right? That he he called it disobedient and lawless and ungodly and unholy and even profane. And so we would look at that in there where it says, well, men who practice homosexuality, that's in there. And that's not just saying men, that's really men referring to mankind, you know, humans who practice homosexuality, like that's profane, that's unholy. Okay. So I would agree with that. But I think the thing that happens on the right is like you said, we cherry pick, right? So we're going to read that and we're going to, you know, we're going to really want to focus in on that one line. But then we're going to like completely ignore the liars, perjurers mm. as part of that. And even, you know, those who are, who do what is contrary to sound doctrine. So we would look at the totality of scripture and go, well, are you violating other scripture? You know, cause, cause the Bible says if, if you break one law, you're guilty of them all. Yeah. And so we sit here and we like to, to cherry pick, not even just cherry pick our scriptures, but then cherry pick lines and, and words out of certain scriptures. That's yeah, true. You know, and we had, you know, we had talked about this before, and I want you to share what you share with me when we, we think about abortion being murder. And you had shared some interesting thoughts on that aspect of murder in our hearts. Yeah. I mean, Jesus says if we have hatred for someone in our heart, we have murdered them in our heart. So having having hatred for somebody who has had an abortion is just as bad as you've murdered that person in your heart. So I mean the the standard that Jesus has is is much higher than I- anything. Yeah, and that's what I think is interesting when people say we're not under law. No, man, we're under something way more stringent. Yeah. The the standard that Jesus came in with is to me way more intense than than just the Ten Commandments, because Jesus took it from our actions to our heart. Oh yeah, and that like, whoa, <laughs> that's that's a way harder standard to keep. Yeah, no doubt. No. So when people say, like, "Well, we're not under law," no, man, kind of wish I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, not that we could keep it. We, you know, we can't. We're guilty right. of it, but. Um, but man, I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to compare like me thinking about this thing versus doing it, well, yeah, it's easier to not do it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I like when you brought that up because man, it's, I mean, what, what good is it to, to say that we're fighting against murder if we hold murder in our hearts towards those who are murdering? We're all guilty. Yeah. We're all guilty of the same sin now. Yeah, absolutely. According to Jesus, we are. Yeah. Because of our hearts, yeah, <laughs> that are deceitfully wicked. <laughs> well, the other thing in there that I thought was interesting was it says right before it says men who practice homosexuality, it says the sexually immoral. Well, so do we? Do we hold that same righteous indignation towards those who are in fornication or adultery? No, we we celebrate it. We talk about it at work. It's you know we high five one another, and that's <laughs> it's a. Uh, like I said, it's celebrated in the world on on both sides, everywhere you go. So the the standard is much higher. Yeah, and again, that's a picking and choosing. Yeah. So you know, we so we see we 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 will pick and choose our verses. We'll pick and choose parts of the verse, but then we'll also pick and choose what aspect of a sin. So when we think of sexual immorality, we'll go, well, we're we're anti homosexual sexual immorality, but yeah, but like uh, you know, fornication, adultery, well. What is that? I'm a man, you know, nobody's yeah. perfect, da, 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 whatever excuse, you know, that you want to give. And, and I mean, our movies glorify it. Oh yeah. It's everywhere. You know, it's, I mean, it's just, it's on candy wrappers. <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is that whole thing in marketing of sex sells and commercials you and, see. Yeah, yeah. It's everywhere. And we have become desensitized to that, you know, because I mean, let's be honest. I mean, there's really nowhere in politics to come across those things. You can't really make anti-fornication and adultery your campaign platform. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think we would, uh, I think we'd empty out Washington yeah. <laughs> at that point. <laughs> so, this is true. yeah. And so it's crazy how, you know, it's, it's even 
among conservatives, we see a picking and a choosing of how scripture is utilized to try to make a point. And so to go back to the fact that morality is not salvific, I want to show this in scripture, you know, that it is not, it is not these works, it is not these moral platitudes that bring us eternal life. And, and to think that it does is contrary to Scripture. It's going back to that end of Timothy, you know, of saying that whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. We are, we are not holding to sound doctrine if we believe that our morality or our works will somehow produce righteousness or salvation. Yeah. Yeah, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I think that verse is interesting because the second part says that we're created for good works. Yeah. But it's also very clear that we have been saved through faith and not of those works. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really kind of expounds on that point. By grace you've been saved, through faith. This is not your doing. It is the gift of God. Yeah. <laughs> and it really kind of hammers that point home. And that's really what we're studying in James right now too, right? Is that there is a faith that works, that produces yeah. good works, just like yeah, Paul is saying here. Bear good fruit, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, those works do do not create or establish our faith. That's right. They are a result of our faith. That's right. They are because we have faith. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Romans 10, 3 says there's none righteous, not one. So mm-hmm. in and of ourselves, there is no no right standing before God. There is no righteousness. I mean, Jeremiah says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. So mm-hmm. we're not innately good. We're not innately moral enough to, to attain righteousness. And, you know, and then going on beyond that, you know, I think if you would poll these people, you know, on both sides, conservatives and left, you would say, well, well you quote scripture, like, do you believe in God? Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so what good is that? Yeah. Well, James 2, 19 says, even the demons believe and shudder. So believing mental belief is not, uh, is not faith. Right. It says right here, the, the demons believe. Yeah, so I mean, it it definitely it takes more than our works. It takes more than just a mental assent. So you know, you and I were talking about this kind of two party system. I mean, there, there's always attempts at making other libertarian or whatever parties that aren't Republican or Democrat. But it does seem that the the nation is divided pretty heavily between those two, and if not, that at least conservatives, liberals, you know, and there's kind of like little subgroups in each one and and whatever as far as how extreme someone goes. But, I mean, it goes back to they have kind of established themselves as religions, you know, but Jesus was not a Democrat or a Republican. Yeah. He's not a conservative or a liberal. You know, he just held to, true to Scripture. But with that being said, if us going, well, Jesus wasn't a Republican or Democrat, so what does that mean for us in our role with politics, in our role with government? Does that mean that we're just, anarchists and we go well jesus wasn't jesus didn't have a political party so anarchy right like we're just gonna whatever buck the system and run crazy and you know and all of that no i mean it's i don't think that's the answer so the bible again i i always want to point back to the bible as our standard as we say in our line to the standard of truth scripture is pretty clear about our relationship with government and and how we should respond and what God's role is even with government. Yeah. So what are what are some of the things that scripture speaks about when when we start talking about politics and government? Yeah, scripture, I mean scripture says that God is sovereign over government. Proverbs 21:1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And uh Daniel 2:21 He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So it says here that, you know, the king's heart is in the Lord's hand and God turns it wherever he will, wherever he wants it to go. And, uh, and he changes, he removes kings, he sets up kings. Uh, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying 
that he's actually sovereign over that? 100%. So, so wait a minute, because the last two elections, man, there were a lot of people freaking out. Yeah. There are a lot of people who kind of went crazy yeah. in each of the last two elections from both both sides, right? I mean, I think both sides have have touted almost that not my president kind of thing, right? And both sides in the last two elections have talked about the election being stolen, you know, and <laughs> yeah. and like I don't know that anybody's explicitly said it, but it just seems like there's this implication that like God didn't know who yeah. was going to become president. God was surprised by shocked all of this. He's probably up there wringing his hands like, yeah. oh, what am I going to do now? <laughs> I did not see that coming. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, to think that is to is really like a slap in the face to God that even just our American government system is going to is going to surprise God. And there's there's so many other different governments on the earth that this one right here in this small corner of the earth is gonna is gonna thwart God's will. I mean we see it in uh in Kings, first and second Kings. There was kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and tore down some high places. And then the next king who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Every single one of those kings was appointed by God. They were they were government, they were in an authoritative position. They were all put there by God, the good, the bad. I mean it's it, God wasn't surprised. He was still faithful through all of that. Because he never stops sitting on the throne. Yeah. You know, I think from the right, people have viewed Donald Trump as as almost this savior for America. Yeah. Right? As though we we have to have Trump for America to be saved, for America to get back in the right direction, as though God can't use anybody. God can use whoever he wants. God is sovereign. God is in control. You know, yeah. and I think the left, for the left, it was... America can only be saved if we have anybody but Trump. Like, we just, we have to get Trump out. You know, yeah. the orange man bad, right? Whatever. Yeah, and right. Like, if, as long as we get him out, it almost, they almost be like, it almost doesn't matter who we get. Like, America will be saved just by getting Trump out of there. But both sides have viewed the salvation of America as being rested upon the shoulders of a man. Yeah. In scripture, we see, I think it was... King Cyrus, who like rebuilt the temple, he he makes it he makes a decree. He's like, yeah, you know, you guys can rebuild the temple, and he he wasn't a man of God, but he even gave orders that you know the the exiles and all that they could come together and get get wood from the surrounding nations and stone and rebuild the temple. Yeah, I mean, we saw that over and over. Kings who were not worshipers of the one true God who still showed favor upon uh, people like Daniel, you know, or Joseph with Pharaoh, with Joseph and um, all of that. It wasn't because of the goodness of their heart. It was because as this verse says that God, you know, turns the heart of a King like streams of water in his hand Yeah, is all the work of God. God is in control. Totally in control. And so knowing that God is in control, what is our response supposed to be? Well, Titus 3, 1 through 2, uh, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. So there's that word, submissive. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. But the second half of that verse. <laughs> yeah. Look, look, even for me, I'm going to say, that's hard. It is. Yeah, to, to speak, speak evil, evil of no one. <laughs> yeah. That's the part I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, wow. I mean, that's to avoid quarreling. <sighs> After every election, there's people throwing Molotov cocktails and flipping cars on both sides. Well, we're two years into this one, and the quarreling has not stopped. <laughs> yeah. It is non. I mean, there has been quarreling for the last six. I mean, there's been quarreling forever, but man, for the last six years, it has been. Yeah, it's crazy. Off the charts. To be gentle. Uh, I don't see a lot of gentleness out there right now. No, 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 no. To show perfect courtesy towards all people. I don't think courtesy is a word I would use for modern no. politics. No, I mean there's there's chants that go on. There's flags and all kinds of stuff that get that get spread out. That's not courteous at all. No. And then so then moving on to Romans 13, it speaks about 
speaks to being submissive to a governing authority, that all authority was put there by God, therefore submit to those authorities. First Peter, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Yeah, so we are called to have this heart of humility, of of submission and respect and obedience. You know, and I'd say, we would say that our ultimate obedience is to Christ, right? We're not to obey in a way that would lead us to violate Scripture. Mm-hmm. But in so much that it does not violate Scripture, we are called to respect, obey, and submit to the authorities above us. Yeah. God has allowed in his sovereignty for these institutions and peoples to govern over us. And I think it is a worldview that is temporal and that is focused on earth and not on eternal things that makes us want to buck against that. Because we forget that God is, this is an eternal thing that God is doing an eternal work. It is much more than just our time here on earth. Yeah. We are, we are but a speck on this earth Yeah, compared to God, his time. I mean, you see uh, Meshach, Radshach, and Abednego, who were, you know, every time the the horn or the bell went off. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, that's the one. But I like Radshach. That's Radshach. pretty cool. I mix it up. <laughs> I had to think for a second. I was like, Radshach. Thanks, man. That's cool. <laughs> but yeah, Shadrach. He uh, started Radio Shack. Oh, okay. Yeah, Radshach, Radshach did, yeah. <laughs> but they... Uh, so every time the like the the bell went off or whatever, they were supposed to bow down to the golden idol, and they didn't, you know, because they were that's idolatry, you know, and they, you know, they weren't they weren't running around like ah, we're not gonna do this, you know, like flipping cars and whatnot. They just respectfully were like, no, we're gonna our God does not want us to do that, and God was faithful to them. Yeah, it's interesting that you pointed out because I do want to bring up one. <laughs> I want to bring up something about that. There was no insurrection on their part, right? There was just humble obedience to the word of God and to not bowing to an idol. You know, they weren't, like you said, they weren't over there trying to topple Nebuchadnezzar. And it's it's so interesting. I'll, I'll hear people say, well, Jesus went to the temple and tossed the, the tables, right? You know, and they, they speak of this righteous indignation. And I've heard people kind of use that in like the political sense of like toppling whatever the party is that... <laughs> Obviously, isn't honoring God, right? Yeah, isn't staying yeah. true to Scripture. And I'm like, no, no. The thing is, we need to remember this. Jesus didn't come for some political takeover because that's what the Jews were looking for. The Jews were looking for a political king. Yeah, they weren't looking for an eternal salvific king. They were looking for someone to save them from the rule and reign of Rome. Right. They wanted a political king who would overthrow the Roman Empire and set them free as a people. Not in their hearts, but just socially, governmentally, set them free. Jesus did not come to do that. So Jesus turning over the tables has nothing to do with overthrowing a quote-unquote corrupt... The Roman Empire. Or unjust government. (laughs) Right, yeah, the Roman Empire or the Democratic Party or the, you know, Republican Party. It's not, that's not what Jesus... Jesus isn't flipping over Republican and Democratic tables. If anything, they should both be concerned... That, well, Jesus would flip their tables over in this sense, not to overthrow one government over another, but in the sense that they have made themselves a religion. And Jesus was concerned that the temple had become a place of corruption, that it was no longer a house of prayer, that it was a defilement of the temple. And that is exactly what we've done. But to make political parties into a religion and allow that to infiltrate our church, we have taken the church from being a house of prayer to becoming a house of politics. And there are pastors who are growing their churches right now because they will have people come in. They will have politicians come in and speak from their pulpit on Sunday morning and, and talk about political things instead of preaching the word of God, or they will stand up and they will preach topical messages on political topics instead of just being true to the verse by verse study of scripture. And that's what they're using to grow their church. And they have made, they have turned the house of God from a, from a sanctuary of prayer to a den of thieves and to the worship of a political party. Yeah. And those are the tables that Jesus was flipping. Exactly. Yeah. 
Straight up, man. Yeah. Don't 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 go out there flipping over uh, political tables. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> we're just going through town like, hey, <laughs> yeah. No party here. We're flipping everybody's tables, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Quit worshiping politics. Yeah. Turn to the true God. Yeah. We're starting a ministry called Table Flippers. Yeah. Table yeah, Flippers. That's it. So what is our so to, just to close this out? What is our final call in Scripture when it comes to our government? Well, First Timothy two calls us to pray for those in authority. Yeah, I think back to our episode last week on anger. And this is why I think doing anger first was important. We touched on this last week. Yeah, praying for our enemies. Yeah, yeah. We talked about praying for your enemies. And we talked about that it's hard to keep praying for someone that you hold hatred for. Yeah. That you're angry towards. They're, they're counterintuitive towards one another. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like one of them's got to give at some point. Exactly. Yeah. And so praying for, for authority for those in authority over us, I think can help soften and humble our hearts towards them. Yeah, for sure. And even just, you know, starting locally, pray for your, you know, the people in your county, the panhandle or whatever, you know, wherever you're at, you're statewide, nationwide, worldwide. Yeah, know. most people probably don't know where we are. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, panhandle, what's that? And just, uh, <laughs> but our- just, you know, start, start locally and then expand it out, especially if you struggle with you know animosity towards certain politicians pray pray for that person you know pray for them and you know the animosity will go down that hatred in your heart will start to subside yes and ultimately remember in in praying for them that our hope and trust is in christ that's right he is the only one that can save us and he is sovereign over all yeah yeah we don't need to be putting our faith into our political party into our government we're just called to submit to them and pray and putting our faith in Jesus Christ as our true King, as our true Lord and Savior. That's our putting our faith in our politics is, is idolatry, you know? And uh, yeah, just putting our faith where it needs to be and just putting it in, putting it in the right order, submitting, praying for authorities, putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And loving one another. That's right. All right, so thank you for joining us. Check us out every Monday for a brand new episode. We will be jumping into the five solas as we go into October, so we're excited for that. Join us as we talk about uh, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. Uh, So we look forward to you joining us for that. You can connect with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram by searching the Deed and Truth podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Deed underscore Truth. We would love to hear from you. Connect with us. Send us your questions, comments. Uh, Give us a five-star rating and share the podcast with your friends. And until next time.